Hello and welcome to Pangea Talks, thought leadership conversations with some of the world's leading professionals in family wealth matters. Joining us today is Joycelyn David, the CEO of AV Communications. AV Communications is an award-winning Canadian marketing agency with a deep understanding of multicultural insights. AV Communication clients range from some of the biggest financial institutions in the country to some international luxury brands. Welcome, Joycelyn, to Pangea Talks. Ah, bonjour. <laughs> bonjour and hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. So I need uh, I need our listeners to to get on the same uh, language train that we started with the bonjour and um, uh, hello. And how do we say hello in Tagalog? Which is very similar to Spanish, but spelled with a K. <laughs> love it, love it. So here we are, a thriving, young, vibrant Canadian woman leading this incredible award-winning marketing agency in Canada. Tell me, tell me something that um, made you get out of bed and decide, you know what, this is something I'm going to do at this stage of my life. So Declan, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to tell my story. It starts with stories and stories of representation for me. Growing up as a Filipina Canadian in this beautiful country of Canada, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which was actually a place that attracted a lot of Filipino immigrants at the time. Uh, but I, I grew up in Edmonton, studied in Toronto, and my whole life living as a Canadian felt somewhat underrepresented, under represented in boardrooms and classrooms and in media. So at the tender age of 40, I quit my corporate job, got a tattoo and bought a marketing agency in Toronto. So you got a tattoo. Okay, we'll come back to that later. But yeah, this is uh, exciting so far. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the tattoo was a long time, was a midlife crisis. But I would say that the, 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 the purchasing of a company of a marketing agency was a big decision for me to really step into entrepreneurship, but really step into the mission, at least for me, Declan, which was to ensure that next generations of of others like me growing up multicultural, multi-generational, as hybrid identities, part something else, part Canadian, could also feel represented and seen in the media and in the landscape around them. And so as a marketing agency, that's what ABC does every day. We help brands and companies embrace diversity and inclusion one campaign at a time. And it's my pleasure to do that every day. And that's what gets me out of bed every day. Yeah, I appreciate the inspiration. You know, you use the term there that I find interesting, hybrid, hybrid identities. And uh, I think that's something we'll have to explore as we talk. And maybe we could even do that now. When you talk about hybrid identities, um, I feel like it's a term that is born from your deep experience and your knowledge. Uh, and I'd want to get into unpacking hybrid identities uh, in a moment. But before we go there, I would love for our listeners and our viewers to get to know a bit more about who you are. And you were once an executive with a very high profile international brand. Uh, would love for you to welcome uh, that story to our conversation so folks get to know a bit more about your background. Wonderful. So my background has been as a product marketing and communications professional. Uh, I landed in marketing by accident, however, um, while I was in university, 
studying liberal arts and learning all about the world and subject matter that was obscure but interesting to me, I decided to pursue a master's degree in communications and cultural studies, which my parents said, well, what are you going to do with a degree like that? And I said, well, I think I could pursue something in marketing because marketing is pretty, pretty varied. It's a little bit math. It's a little bit psychology. It's a little bit anthropology. And that's how I landed in marketing. Um, my first job was actually as a proposal writer for a large consulting firm, which required me to learn as much as I could about different industries uh, to create proposals for C-level executives, you know, um, getting services from this very prestigious consulting firm. And I learned a lot in that seven year stint that I had with them, uh, which opened up doors to larger opportunities with global companies. and you know, through hard work and a lot of using my own voice at tables that I was at, I was able to grow into a, a leadership position for a digital product marketing division of a large global entity. And my time over a decade with that brand taught me a lot about running a business and being an entrepreneur, but more than anything, it taught me about how to do business in a global environment where, where borders are increasingly blurred, where uh, culture is hybridized, mixed, multicultural, and where the ability to connect with customers is becoming more and more complicated, but interesting with the advent of new media and with the advent of personalization. So what I learned in my time working on the corporate side was that corporations sometimes can't move as quickly as they would like to. And I made the decision, you know, to quit that job and pursue an entrepreneur role where I could move at the pace of the market and help clients now keep up with that pace. And one of those areas has been in helping brands become more in tuned and aware of the nuances of audiences and customers around the world. And for me, multicultural marketing is mainstream marketing because when you look around everyone is from somewhere else and everyone everyone will speak more than one language generally not always english and french together so for those very reasons uh i feel what i do today at abc is very much you know on the cusp of what i believe is a trend that will only continue indeed and you know you use the term trend in my estimation i think it's uh it's uh, I would take a different definition than calling it a trend. I think it's more of where the world is going. I think it's the future. Multicultural is mainstream, is something you've articulated. And I think that is the future for anyone who's paying attention. You've got over a billion Chinese folks, over a billion South Asian folks uh, on the planet, and their kids are increasingly graduating from North American universities uh, into leadership roles. and. They're growing families and communities, and we're essentially becoming a global village, which is, you know, something that I embrace. And I wanted to actually talk on that a bit. Um, there's a, a study, a multicultural media spending study that came out of the Association of National Advertisers. And this is an organization out of the U.S. that was founded in 1910. They've been around a long time. And here's the study out of New York. It was uh, published back in 2019. And the, the study says multicultural consumers comprise almost 40% of the total U.S. population, yet 
multicultural media investments make up only 5.2% of the total advertising and marketing spend, according to this study. And this was something fascinating to me because I, I, I think that um, as a strategist myself, I always look at multiple sources of data to get a, a, a broader 360 view of whatever I'm thinking or talking about with our teams and even our clients to make decisions long term. I think that that indicator of the spend um, represents a few things. A, the potential for the market to continue to grow and catch up with what's really happening in reality. And uh, number two, it it gives us a sense of um, of of where where the current thinking is and maybe stuck in certain decision-making centers. Would love for your, your perspective and commentary on, on that thinking. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that study. I'm familiar with that stat and that stat, I feel like it's been stuck at that level of 5% or less of spend for probably a good decade or so, but I've seen tremendous momentum in movement of that number in the last two years. So from 2020 to today, 2022, there's definitely been momentum to supercharge and increase that level of investment, I think, on the brand side and the client side. And I think a lot of it has been driven by Declan brands being woke to, you know, the world around us and also realizing that that, that number that was shared in that study, 40 percent, are multicultural or diverse, uh, I would argue that number is just as high as it is in Canada, but the spend in Canada is probably between 5 to 10 percent, if I'm being generous, of most uh, corporate spend that I've seen. Uh -huh. And, you know, the challenge that m myself and other multicultural agencies face is being able to justify to a predominantly non-diverse or non-ethnic buyer why this is important for them to embrace for from a consumer acquisition point of view and i hear you as a leader being very sensitive to addressing uh folks that um are not necessarily as blessed with sun-kissed skin or melanated you, you know mm -hmm. you know you, you're using the term you know non-ethnic buyer but it's curious you know we've come up with these remarkable acronyms to describe uh, people of different ethnicities. I think BIPOC is how you say the, the most recent one that I'm aware of. Um, but, you know, at some point, what I think will change, and this is, I'm of a, I'm of a, a South Asian heritage uh, in my uh, family, in my culture. Um, and, you know, in terms of what I think will start shifting, and I think you and I will observe this while we're here in our leadership roles, is that, you know, terms like BIPOC represent the perceivably, uh, in, in this case, uh, what was once called visible minorities now become BIPOC. And I think as economic spending or spending power in these groups continue to increase, uh, I think you're actually going to see, I think, uh, a, a transition in nomenclature. Because when the economic uh, shifts start happening to the point where there's an equalization, if you will, of uh, spend, an impact in places like politics and academia and the medical community and law and so on. Terms like BIPOC today may become, and this is something I create because I, I, you know, I, you know how much time I have at my hands, zero time on my hands, but I still find time to be creative. You know, this term, um, uh, you know, POC, B-I-P-O-C, the people of color, that may eventually come 
uh, become something like, uh, uh, how would you pronounce if I spelled the word P-O-N-C, people of no color, okay? Uh, and that terminology may actually start emerging in the next 20 years or so, where the shifts are going to be so dramatic that we, we, i.e. we, the folks that are sharing this message of inclusiveness and diversity, will be marketing to folks, uh, and I call it, I call the acronym PUNK, P-O-N-C, PUNK, the punks, uh, people of no color, in, uh, in the decades to come because of the shifts that will be taking place. I don't know if everyone is ready for that sort of a message, though. And the reason why I'm saying that is um, there's a, a fellow uh, out of the National University of Singapore, Kishore Mabubani, and he's been an ambassador uh, from Singapore to the U.S. And he's spoken at a number of Ivy League universities about specifically the, the, the graduate study level classes and preparing the, the grad students, which are the leaders of the future, for what's to come. As in, as Asian countries, say India and China, continue to rise, the once prevalent um, decision-making power that was centralized in the West and Western uh, parties at the decision-making table will no longer be the same because the other folks will have just as much education or more and just as much economic and military resources. So they may not be listening in the same way. And the influence that the West once had is, as we've seen to some degree, waning. And as a, as a leader, and this is why I'm, I love these kinds of conversations with executives and strategic thinkers, because I'm sure that that is somewhere in your thinking. Like We're actually doing a service to folks to help them embrace diversity because it is the future. Now, yeah, actually diversity, we are in a multicultural era today. Mm. And the, the one thing I, I love to tell my clients uh, is, you know, ethnicity our, our cultural background you know the language we speak where we were born these are all things that inform our identity but going back to that sense of hybrid identity yeah. because the world is borderless um, and travel before you know the pandemic people would often live or work in more than one country before they came to canada right so it's not uncommon to have in my family i'm filipino canadian you know, uh, it's not uncommon in my family to see someone who's from the Philippines but lived in Dubai, worked in Saudi Arabia, right. And, right. and 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 now lives in Canada. And so, right. is that person a you know is that is that, what, what label would you apply to to that experience? You know, and I feel like the labels are are challenging. Like you say, they they will evolve. But I I have one label that I love to use, which is a citizen of the world or a global citizen, yeah. because in the sense that. I'm Filipino, but I love Jamaican food and I grew up eating pierogies <laughs> in Alberta. I love it. So I am a global citizen and that is what makes me unique. And for brands who understand that their customers are global citizens, they will begin to forget, they, they will begin to break down those stereotypes or these boundaries that they sometimes have that every community is homogenous. Well, it's absolutely the opposite communities are diverse and multicultural and not homogenous and so if the sooner brands can embrace this thinking in their business in their hiring and in their marketing the the better their business will be because diversity is good for business 
Indeed, and I love that you you linked the two. Economics is a fascinating driver of behavior in the Western world, and it, and it globally really, where where the world is continuing to evolve. But uh, economics definitely shapes uh, Western thinking. Uh, and what's wonderful about this conversation is, I think when you describe yourself as a Canadian. Uh, or as a Filipino a person, a person of Filipino heritage, living in Alberta, uh, enjoying Jamaican food and eating pierogies, that to me, to me, is a, a, a brilliant example of what Canadian is today. You know, that I think there was a, an old beer commercial that you remember, where you know I, I think it was a Molson commercial or I can't remember exactly which beer but there's a you know uh, uh, your ethnic male fellow of your ethnic heritage uh, who gets up on stage in his plaid shirt and his scruffy beard and inspires the crowd and at the end says I am Canadian and I looked at that you know I look back on it, I think to myself I, th I, th I think you you're and you're a Canadian you're part of the Canadian story but um, you're in my humble opinion growing up in Toronto having friends in Vancouver and Montreal and you know, across different parts of the country. Um, around my friendship table, when I look around my table, I see cultures of the world represented there. And I've always embraced that as Canadian. So that story that we need to tell through the work that you do, this is how I see how impactful the work is that you do. We're shaping the minds and we're, we're actually creating the future through the work that you do. So no pressure in what you do, okay? No pressure. Pressure makes diamonds, So, and then that's what I, I really believe, you know, my team today, one campaign at a time, helping to make diamonds for our, our clients who are looking to not just acquire new customers and business, but really connect for long-term lifetime value of that customer. And there's so many stats that talk about, you know, the brand loyalty that often immigrants or newcomers to Canada will have to their first bank, you know, to their first insurance company, to their first uh, car brand, you know, those loyalties that sit with, let's say the first buyer, in a Filipino household or a South Asian household, for example, will often pass to the next generation because mm -hmm. families are often intergenerational as well. And so the lifetime value of a multicultural, diverse Canadian customer will often go beyond the first generation. And this is why I think today more and more companies are woke, like, oh, I got to pay attention to this. Oh, I got to better understand this. But they're also scared, Declan. There's a lot of clients who, and companies who are afraid of getting it wrong, maybe afraid of uh, leading into maybe a stereotype or not understanding a nuance uh, and, and, and ha landing a bad headline in the news for inappropriate use of a word or inappropriate use of a, of a talent on an advertisement. You know, so these are the things that sometimes, you know, my advice to brands or companies looking to get into diversity is that it goes beyond hiring people of color. It really, it's an investment in understanding and taking the time to understand your audience and your customer. And that cannot be done without expertise at the table and having knowledge around that table and having diversity at your table. And I can't tell you enough times when I've been at clients' tables and I am the only person of color at that table and they all look to me like the expert who can talk <laughs> about communities. And I'm like, no, but I actually need to bring in 
you know, sure. you know, team, you know, but it's, this is the, this is the thing where I love these conversations because they're difficult. They're difficult, but they are also needed for us to move forward, you know, with understanding. I think it's a catalyst, uh, catalyst for the change that we we are seeking to, to we're looking to change to we're seeking to change the world, and we're the ones that have to do it, and we're the catalyst for that change. Um, you know, Catalyst, the women's uh, uh, organization, uh, sixty years it's been around workplaces that work for women. Catalyst, as you know, is a global nonprofit supported by many of the world's most powerful CEOs and leading companies to help build workplaces uh, that work for women. Um, I want to share with you something that came out of uh, Catalyst um, and what I'm about to say, I'll, I'll just preface it uh, with some of the terminology. And this was uh, coming out of December 2021 in one of their online publications. Um, they talk about uh, Canadians and people of color. Okay. Um, I, you know, I personally have a, a, a sentiment about the term people of color and, and, you know, we're just trying to find a way forward. So I'll use it for the sake of describing this. The the statistics from Catalyst and their website say that as of uh, 2016, um, there are about 22% of the Canadian population, um, just over, just under 8 million, so 7.6 million people of color live in Canada. And women are just, uh, just slightly over half of that. Um, and, and it goes on to say by 2036, people of color are projected to be about one third of the population. So, you know, what we're seeing now really is what I would describe as the, um, the, the sun rising <laughs> on, on this uh, conversation that we're about to have. And it's going to continue to get brighter as time, um, as time moves on. Some of the things that were interesting from the, the, the Catalyst data, it talks about um, of those uh, diverse populations, about 25% of South Asian, 20% Chinese, 10% uh, Filipino. Uh, just under 7% uh, uh, folks of Persian or Arabic heritage and uh, just under 6% Latin American and folks of African heritage uh, just over 15% here. Here's what's really neat about those groups uh, when it comes to education. Among the students competing for undergraduate degrees within a specific time period here uh, between uh, 2017 and 2018, 40% self-identified as people of color. And uh, that was that was very interesting to see because um, the population of folks uh, that folks would describe as immigrants or for you know second generation, they come very highly educated, which is an interesting way to start thinking about the the, the, the new Canadian market in the minds of folks that are listening to this conversation, because the juxtaposition I'd like to make is this: the immigrants, Italians. The immigrants, the Greeks, the immigrants, the Portuguese who came here decades ago, they didn't come here as educated. They did not come here with university degrees generally, uh, graduate degrees. They came here as laborers. So, and, and what's fascinating is you have these brilliant group of people um, who have created to the Canadian fabric, you know, you, a lot of Italian folks and friends of mine who are Italian, some of my closest friends are Italian. Their families within one generation worked so hard to put their kids through school. Now their kids are doctors and lawyers and professionals in different areas um, and other uh, Euro-ethnic groups. But that's different. That 
that immigrant group is different than the one we're seeing today, where the folks who are coming in are already highly educated. So I'd like you to comment on that and how even speaking on behalf or to this higher, highly educated immigrant population or new Canadian population changes your messaging, if at all. That's a great, thank you so much for sharing that, Thad, because it is definitely an important one for leaders to be aware of. Uh, I want to dispel the myth, which I think this study dispels, that immigrants and newcomers have lower household income or disposable income. Like, just dispel, that's a myth, okay? And the truth is, when you look at the average household income of an immigrant versus the, the benchmark of Canadian household income, it will it will generally index higher than the, the general population of Canada, and that's Stats Canada data that anybody can look up. Okay, what I see has been a contributing factor to that change has been the evolution of the immigration system in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, in my, in my previous life, Declan and I worked uh, very closely with different consulate groups. Uh, with embassies, um, with the study of the movement of people. And I even had the pleasure to sit on the National Immigration Council, which is out of Ottawa, and, you know, really look at how the programs were shaping the, 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 the persona of the immigrant coming into Canada. And you're absolutely right. The study is right. What your observation is, in order to come to Canada today, in 2022, you have to show proof of funds in your bank account, you have to be university educated, which means in your home country, you're already pretty well off or well established in terms of socio socioeconomic, um, uh, you know, um, status uh, to be able to afford post-secondary, you know, schooling in India or in the Philippines or in China, like you have to be able to afford that. Um, and you have to be able to pass a very rigorous point system of showing ability to be employed, ability to move, and of course, financial is a big part of that. So immigrants coming to Canada are highly educated, have money in the bank, ready to spend, and when they come here, they can't get a credit rating to get a phone, and they have a hard time you know, qualifying for credit because they have no established credit history. And that has been, you know, the age old, you know, struggle is that they're coming highly educated, ready to work in their field, ready to spend and buy properties, but they are constrained with, oh, you don't have Canadian experience. And um, until you have that, I won't hire you. So work this survival job, driving a cab or driving an Uber. And that, that is unfortunately still happening today in 2022. And it is, I believe, Canada's flaw that the pandemic has helped to expose. So for example, most recently, um, the government announced, I believe it was the federal, they announced they're gonna start recognizing internationally trained nursing accreditations, where previously those doors were closed or extremely onerous for internationally trained uh, nurses to to qualify for, so they've started to flex these, you know, very institutional rules that have been in place for a long time, to accommodate the massive shortage of labor that we need in healthcare and in other sectors. And I think it's the board of Conference Board of Canada provided a, an amazing stat. I think it was one out of five Canadians are going to retire in the next, you know, five to ten years and we're gonna need immigration to fill the labor need. And so what they continually educate us with data on is 
this isn't going to happen organically with births in Canada. It's going to come from immigration. So that is the, the, the numbers and the experience, unfortunately, is still very much we have educated nurses, doctors, engineers, professionals driving Ubers or working service jobs where their talent is underutilized because of our crazy infrastructure and institutions that have been inflexible to that change. I hope, and I'm optimistic, Declan, that it will improve, but that is what I've seen as one of the drivers. And I hope that for you know your clients and your audience listening today, that they will understand that the myth of newcomers and immigrants not being you know high spenders or have high disposable income that's a myth just cross that one off your list and start here from today understanding that they are the future and they are willing to spend and they do need to come to canada to help keep our economy and our jobs and our wonderful businesses running for the future I, I can hear the compassion in your voice as you talk about, uh, you know, immigrant Canadians or new Canadians is what we can call them, who are highly skilled and have to really build their lives from a place of uh, square one in some cases. And um, while it's heartbreaking, there is there is sunshine on the horizon because in those same groups, I, you know, clients of ours are, you know, they've moved here. You've, you've heard the, <laughs> the age old story of uh, immigrants moving to this country with $25 in their pockets and within 20 or 30 years they build billion dollar businesses. Uh, I know quite a few of those, some of those people are friends of mine and uh, I'm, I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by their their perspective on life and I wanted to continue talking about this story about multiculturalism in Canada. Uh, in 2020 a study was uh, completed by Imagine Canada titled The Multicultural and Newcomer Charitable giving study. It was one of the first in Canada to explore the influence of ethnicity on supporting charities. Um, and what was what was the what the conclusion was is that um, multicultural Canadians are the future of generosity. That's the headline on the survey. Newcomers to Canada and second generation Canadians are highly motivated to support charitable causes. And this is according to this uh, survey from Imagine Canada and ethnicity matters and um, it was done with a coalition of charities and nonprofits that surveyed south asian chinese filipino uh, afro-caribbean african uh, folks uh, arab and iranian uh, and they all share all these cultural groups share a strong willingness to embrace community service so somewhere the uh, i think maybe the the federal government needs to hire you and your firm to help with their uh, their cultural uh, inclusiveness and the diversity messaging that goes out to the Canadian population because I think they need, I sincerely believe that the federal government is in need of some meaningful support there to create a shift in the minds of how even employers look at immigrants and uh, financial institutions who really provide uh, the lifeblood for the starting uh, foundation of building a life here in Canada in some ways. So I, I appreciate you, you allowing me to share that. but. As we talk about uh, the second generation Canadians, that's likely where the um, the hybrid identity conversation starts to emerge. And I would love to explore that because in a previous uh, conversation we just had moments ago, 
um, part of the, the conversation, you talked about second generation Canadians embracing the same brands, institutions, banks, for an example, that their parents did. And what we're finding with the trillions of dollars, I think the number is now 38 trillion dollars worth of wealth transfer happening intergenerationally globally uh, over the next uh, 15 to 20 years and sooner in some cases, um, will second generation Canadians of uh, uh, multicultural background remain with these big institutions when they weren't historically welcoming and accommodating to their parents. And they haven't forgotten that. That's something I'll share with you in this open conversation. Um, these folks remember how difficult some of these institutions and organizations made it for their parents. And um, I think when alternatives become available, they may have an internal locus of, of, of decision-making that says, hey, you know what? We gave you guys a shot for one generation. We're going to try somebody else for our generation. Maybe that's what some of those big brands are thinking. Well, I'll share a story. It's a, it's a Friday, so I, maybe I'm inspired on the Friday thinking about happy hour, Declan. Yeah. The, uh, on, an, on an intergenerational story. So um, we, the insight that I'll share is that, you know, it, you know, the second generation, um, they're, they're, they're the sons or daughters of immigrant parents are by definition hybrid Canadians. They, <laughs> they, they, they were born or raised in Canada, but they were raised with the values of back home country, like the back home um, country or values. So I always tell people like, you know, I was born in Canada and I was raised a Filipino. So, you know, the, the values of respecting your elders and, you know, going to church every week and always bargaining for stuff, you know, the, those were instilled <laughs> very, very, very early, you know, but, but, but that, but that, that, that navigation of both cultures, you know, as someone who is a second generation, and I'm sure for many other Canadians out there who straddle not just Canadian Filipino, but maybe have multi multicultural families. So uh, imagine now second generation kids who are half Filipino or half Jamaican. And so what which part of their identity does a brand connect with? Which part of identity does that person connect with? The idea is really that they're multicultural and they will they will be informed by both you know, aspects of their culture, not just one. And so we have this client who is in the, you know, alcohol industry, uh, go unnamed, but, you know, they, they came to us with, you know, this brief that they wanted to reach out to, you know, a first generation audience. And they felt that this audience was the right one to go after. And we shared with them the insight that, well, actually you're, you're missing out on the second generation audience as well. And we shared with them the reason that they are drinking as Canadians, but they don't tell their their immigrant parents that they're drinking. <laughs> you know, so the insight was way deeper that by understanding the nuances of intergenerational, multicultural families in Canada, it makes for very interesting marketing. So in this case, we led with, you know, messaging that you can enjoy this product, you know, with your friends and not upset 
you know, the, the value that was instilled at, within the home that maybe I don't drink in front of my parents. I'll never let my parents see me drink, but I'll drink with my girls and my friends or my, my, my bros when we're out. And that, that insight of intergenerational, you know, difference was something that at least for this brand, they, they accepted, they took the reco from us and they leaned into it and it was hugely successful because we effectively doubled their market size uh, of opportunity and they saw an increase in sales. But if they had led with, you know, one understanding of the unique culture as opposed to the multi-culture of both generations, they would have missed out on the second half. So I love sharing that story only because it meant that we were encouraging more people to enjoy and have happy hour like we are on this Friday. Yeah, no, I, I want to celebrate uh, with this happy hour too. We should do this over a drink next time. <laughs> I think we should. Yeah, I really think we should. Listen, that was a, a brilliant way to uh, convey the, the, the messaging and the sentiment to reach an audience that's not being uh, reached effectively because generally there hasn't been representation in advertising and media. Um, and not because there's a lack of talent. I'll, I'll use an example of what I mean by that. One of Netflix's most popular series, Squid Game, came out of Korea. Mm. Uh, one of their highest grossing opening movies on Netflix uh, was headlined by uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. <clears throat> and he's, uh, he's of a mixed heritage. Um, and I find these indicators curious because somewhere in the let's call it establishment thinking for some reason embracing it more embracing multiculturalism more deeply i don't know if it's an interpretation of it being a threat or what the fear is but we've coexisted on the planet for millennia along different cultures i mean india and china are neighbors they've been neighbors for millennia and um yeah, you know we, we, we know each other's stories. As a matter of fact, our histories, faith groups, are they're all inter, intermingled. So we're all related to some degree uh, as part of the human fabric is how I say the human family fabric is how I say it. And the reason I make that statement is that, um, you know, that Marvel movie, Black Panther, with a majority cast of African heritage, did tremendously well globally when out of hollywood folks were saying no one's gonna go this is this decades leading up to of course black panther's success no one would go see a movie where the majority of the cast was of african heritage and so we have to prove what we already know to whom to whom are we proving this so i asked those leadership questions uh because as you and I know, we were educated in Canada. When folks ask me who I am, I, I say to them when I meet them for the first time, and I know that they're probably new to culture. And I say to them, I, you know, I'm an Indian born in the sunshine of the Caribbean who was educated in Canada, dresses like an Italian and speaks like a Brit. Like, if that doesn't say a Canadian, I don't know what does, right? I love that. that that's better than my Peruvian, Jamaican, Filipino example. I love that, Declan. That's think, awesome. But I think that's what it means to be Canadian in some, in some ways. Um, and we'll talk about language in a moment, but I wanted to quote something from the Walrus, you know, the Walrus magazine. 
uh, online magazine. Uh, there's one article that was actually funded by the government of Canada, and I wanted to disclose that. It, the article opens with a headline, Canadian Multiculturalism, a work in progress. As we mark 50 years since the adoption of Canada's federal multiculturalism policy, by the way, we do have a federal multiculturalism policy, uh, human rights advocate uh, in this article celebrates its merits and reflects on the work that is yet to be done when it comes to inclusion, acceptance, and fighting, we're still fighting for systemic, because of systemic racism in our country. I, I find that curious that we're still fighting for it, but evidently I think no one listening to this was aware, and I'll use the term woke, is going to be surprised by that statement. The article opens with this, and I want you to comment on what, what the opening sentence is. It says here, I've often joked that many of us have drunk the Kool-Aid with one distinctly Canadian flavor called, in quotes, multiculturalism. This is a deep quote if for the folks who are, you know, to your point, woke and aware, I'd love for you to comment on how you, you feel about that opening statement in that article. Um, that's first of all, to, to acknowledge that it's been 50 years that that policy has been around, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe ahead of its time, you know, at the time, but not necessarily fully realized to this day where we're still a work in progress as, as it says in the article as well. The way I react to the multiculturalism statement there is less about what, what it's stating, but more about where are we starting from in terms of the definition of what is multiculturalism. Mm. And I believe you know, when 50 years ago that that policy came into uh, being, it was it was to foster a sense of the value of what Canada was, right? That we tolerant, hospitable, welcoming, and our immigration policies reflected that, and that was um, embodied through the multiculturalism policy. I believe it was Trudeau, if I'm not mistaken, first Trudeau, um, who enacted that. But if you fast forward to today, and the, the comment about the Kool-Aid um, is that, why did it take Kool-Aid for people to be woke to multiculturalism when you are literally surrounded in the diversity in your daily life here in Canada? You can't walk down any street uh, without being aware that multiculturalism is reflected in the businesses, in you know, Little Italy, Little Korea, Cabbage Town in Toronto, right? To Chinatown in Vancouver to, um, you know, uh, my gosh, like if I, the, every city in Canada will have its own pockets reflecting the multiculturalism. So for me, the idea that the, the Kool-Aid was needed, I almost question why, like this, for me, the statement is more of a question. Where did we start from and where do we actually see, see ourselves going and will Kool-Aid actually get us there or not? If I understood that quote correctly, Declan, but the way I respond to um, where I see us going mm -hmm. is that unless we look inward as a nation, as a community, as a business to reach across and better have, have conversations around 
the Kool-Aid tower, if it were, <laughs> we will just be each sipping our own Kool-Aid and not talking to each other. Like it, for me, my job as an agency is often to turn the heads inward to kind of encourage and force those conversations that generally would be brands just talking at people, but not talking with people and with communities that they don't understand. And so I, I am a big believer of the best way to embrace multiculturalism is to live it. And so your example of, you know, dressing like an Italian, but growing up in a multicultural, you know, upbringing, that is the best way I believe that brands can immerse themselves in that understanding in order to drive business value, in order to connect with long-term customers for life, hopefully, but more importantly, to get beyond um, the surface, which the article is trying to expose and to get to deeper, deeper understanding, which does take time. My question is, are we gonna wait another 50 years to do that? Uh, you know, when you say we, the all-inclusive we, I think there are segments of our community that are already, we're there. It's, uh, we're just waiting for other members of the Canadian family to really recognize and embrace what we're, um, we're talking about here. Uh, and when I say wait, I wanted to just quote some information for us here on this, this call. You, you may be aware, and I don't know if your clients are even aware, that there actually is a Canadian Multiculturalism Act. A new Canadian multiculturalism policy with a clear sense of purpose and direction came into effect in 1988, uh, which was adopted by Parliament. And it was Can and Canada really was the first country in the world to pass a national multiculturalism law. And the act still today sets out the legal framework for Canada's multiculturalism policy. So there is policy in place for it. Why we would need it is, you know, we can discuss that in another call, but but there is a there isn't a law and an act in place for multiculturalism here in the country. You talked about looking to the future. Um, I'm curious, with the time you've spent uh, creating value for your clients, changing the conversation in the media about multiculturalism and showing people what the future looks like. What does the future look like for ABC? I think the future is bright, first of all, for businesses like mine who are focused on multicultural audiences and, and, and furthering the mission, you know, to increase representation in business in front of the camera, behind the camera, at the boardroom table on the sales floor, figuratively and literally. Uh, but I think that will need to be supported with you know, technology and tools to improve the visibility and transparency of, of what is a fast growing market that is still very largely understood by most of the large institutions in our country. Um, you know, technology is one way in which to better connect and, and bring understanding, but it's still a tool that um, without, uh, you know, without the intent to actually garner knowledge from the tool, those are one of the areas that I'm focused on uh, with my agency is developing mar marketing technology or MarTech tools that will enable businesses to better understand this unknown, let's say, universe that they have not been involved or tapped into previously 
but more importantly, continually tap into and understand the, the changes that are happening. So it's, we're not a homogenous, you know, country and the nuances are changing and the, the communities are changing every day, every month, every quarter. And we will need better tools to be able to manage this. And the pandemic has actually highlighted the need for such tools. So for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, South Asian community in Vancouver, um, you know, took it upon themselves as an organization to do their own study to better understand how the pandemic was um, adversely affecting members of their community on the front line in Vancouver. But there was no data, there was no institution, public health, nothing that was actually looking at the data at a community level. And so the community took it upon themselves to get the data, publish the data, and issue the thought leadership back into the market, you know, in English, in Punjabi, and in French, because it was important to their community. And so that was that only happened at the initiative of the community taking whatever tools they had to bring information and knowledge to the to the larger mainstream. Imagine that same effort now with technology and tools in media in any sector of business. You know, how are my audiences buying cards? How are the diverse audiences choosing banking providers? How are small business owners starting businesses, small business entrepreneurs, also newcomers and immigrants, how are they uh, feeling or how are they affected uh, going forward. All of this will need to be answered with good data. And there are uh, research firms uh, more and more invested in tracking, you know, audience specific or language specific parameters, but it, I can count them with one hand, <laughs> you know, on one hand, the ones that are doing it well and the ones who understand uh, it. And so what I see in the future is more partnership and collaboration um, between organizations like mine and others. And I hope in the future, um, more attention at the boardroom level to increase investments in this fast growing market of community and customer beyond the 5% that we heard at the beginning of our talk. 5% investments is nothing in the scheme of 40% of the market of being representative multicultural so i would love i would love to see that feature come to life sooner than later and i would love to be a part of that you know for any client helping them on their journey that's what gets me out of bed every morning and <laughs> i like to i like to stay with a smile and maybe with you know a beer at the end of the week which i'll cheers to you virtually here today sure. with a virtual I'll beer you know i uh, i appreciate you sharing your hearts on this uh, conversation and uh, as we look into uh, winding down for this conversation, I would love to welcome you back at some point in the future. Uh, we could talk about some of this new MarTech. That seems like it's going to be an entire conversation about what marketing technology is and how you're going to be using it for um, reaching a multicultural audience, uh, likely. Um, and here, here, I'm going to say this distinction, likely across North America and potentially globally, you can use the platform. So we'd love to hear more about that. And as you talk about this, I want to just share this with you as a friend uh, on our talk, uh, as a fellow executive, a leader in our respective spaces, that Pangea is focused on building one of the top three most sought after 
family wealth firms or private family wealth firms in North America with global reach. And I think uh, as you and I continue to talk, uh, I think that AV Communications uh, and other projects that you're working with will play a big role there because uh, a large, over 75% uh, of our clients are uh, folks uh, of a multicultural heritage who are exceedingly successful. They've done very, very well for themselves in that story we talked about earlier. And um, there seems to be a strong values alignment. So you and I will continue to talk about that absolutely some more into the future. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you this one question before we conclude. What do you love most about what you do? What I love most about what I do is that I am helping to shape the Canadian landscape through media and marketing and storytelling that is informing and being put in front of audiences like my son who are growing up in a multicultural country like Canada. You know, I think I, I posted uh, recently on my LinkedIn about, um, you know, how there's, for the first time in my life, I'm seeing more Filipino representation in front of the screen on mainstream programming. And, and I feel like what I love is that I'm part of this. You know, I'm part of this movement to shift representation forward so that my son will see himself reflected and other young Canadians from wherever they are, whatever their background, hybrid, multicultural, biracial, BIPOC, or Canadian, will also see themselves reflected. And I think that is important in the storytelling that we do. And that is why I love what we do, is because I'm helping to close those gaps that I never saw myself reflected for most of my life living in Canada. But my son's 13 and he's already seen himself reflected. That's already that's already a hundred percent better wow. than my than my lifetime. So that's an optimization that I'd like to say I'm part of. And I will continue to love doing that every day. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm so thrilled that we had this opportunity to talk and I'll I'd like to share why I thank you for sharing what you shared. I'd love to share why I love uh, sharing time with you and what you do at ABC. Uh, it's because you believe in multicultural communities. You strive to advance the interest of all multicultural and um, BIPOC audiences by making sure that their stories are represented and heard. I think it's so important that the voices of people get heard, especially around decision-making uh, communities and uh, where there are decision-making stakeholders at the table. And I also love that you amplify those voices of immigrants by creating work that not only speaks their language, but reflects their culture. I find that precious, very, very precious. It's like uh, one of the key things, uh, you know, I, I think you know that I'm connected to Trinity Western University's uh, MA leadership program. And, um, and so finding commonalities is how you start creating dialogue to build a way forward. And I love that you're playing that role as well. And you also empower newcomers and international students by investing in their talent through your own you know, job training and placement within ABC. And you celebrate diversity in every way, starting with your own employees, and you find joy and inspiration in common Canadian experiences, as well as our differences, which I think we need to 
embrace. And I'd like to say from Pangea to you, we believe in you. We believe in what you're doing at ABC. And we're so glad to have shared this time with you on Pangea Talks. You're welcome back at any time, Joyce Lynn. Salama. Thank you. <laughs> you're and merci beaucoup. <laughs> You're welcome back at any time. A bientôt. Ciao. Bye.